The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen. Uh, joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. We also have a special guest with us today, and we're, we're really excited about this because um, he's got a lot of stuff to share with us, and that is uh, Senator Steve Glazer. Senator, how are you doing today? Good, Rich. Nice to see t- talk to you and Tim as well. Great. Well, again, thanks for being here because, uh, uh, you know, we've been wanting to get you on the show for a while because uh, you announced a, a little bit back that uh, you were not going to be running uh, for re-election. Uh, and there was, you know, some, I don't want to say controversy, that's not the right word. There was some question as to about whether or not you would even legally be able to do that uh, because of California's somewhat confusing uh, term limits laws. So we thought it would be a really good uh, thing for our audience if uh, we chatted with you a little bit about that. So uh, if you don't mind, take us, set, do the setup for us, uh, you know, how, why this is even a question and then how you came to make the decision that you made. Great. Well, the term limits law that was in effect prior to 2012 was pretty clear. It said that if you were elected in a special election and you serve less than half of that term, it didn't count. So that made it pretty clear. I, I was elected in a special with a year and a half left on uh, that then Senator Mark Desaunier's term was elected to Congress. Uh, but under the new term limits established in 2012, they didn't talk in terms of terms. They just talked in terms of a flat 12 years. And because I was elected in the special, that I would get to a point where I would be in the Senate for about nine and a half years, but a new four-year term would extend beyond the 12 years. And so I would be the test case under the new term limits law. It's never been challenged. This interpretation of whether a partial term counts or doesn't count, uh, never been adjudicated. And so I decided that rather than be in that test case, and there are other members of the legislature who are going to in that same situation uh, in the years ahead, that I would just make the decision that I was not going to run for reelect so that the field of candidates could be as robust as possible. If I had run and been challenged, it's much more likely that you would have had gadflies uh, in the uh, in the field uh, that maybe more of the serious candidates wouldn't challenge me. And if I lost the court case, and this would likely be after filing had closed, then the options for the voters would be very limited. And I didn't want that option to be in, in play. Yeah, it's really interesting because you would have been rolling the dice that the courts would have endorsed you being able to run. And so it seemed, as you know, given the way a lot of our elections are now where we're seeing often candidates who we would not generally have considered serious at uh, many points in our history, it did seem probably like a pretty big risk, I imagine. Well, I did consult lawyers. I do chair the Senate Elections Committee. I have some familiarity with the law uh, and uh, I just chose a a more conservative path and, and, and there you have it. Well, and you made the announcement on your podcast, and as I noted, we we wanted to talk with you about that, and you you did it with uh, with your daughter. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that decision, because as a news guy, of course, we always would have wanted you to sit down and tell us first, maybe break it on our podcast. But you had a, you had a better idea, I think. Well, I uh, as we you know, you serve your time in the legislature. There's so many interesting things you get to do. 
not just on the thousands of bills you get to vote on every year, uh, but you get to meet a lot of people and you get to learn some things that are interesting and in some cases surprising about uh, people, places, uh, politics. And so I decided that it that in my my ninth year that I wanted to to kind of explore that medium for uh, the ability to tell stories and to share information with my constituents in my district. And that's the reason I I began the podcast. I stole away the morning producer from KCBS radio in San Francisco uh, as my producer of uh, our podcast. And we've really had a good time uh, telling stories. Uh, we call it surprising stories about people, places, and politics. Uh, and uh, it's called Table Talk with Senator Steve Glazer, available on all the various platforms, Spotify, Apple, uh, and of course, the links on my own website. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the course of telling these stories, the story about my choice seemed like a legitimate one to uh, to uh, share. And uh, and I decided to have my daughter do it because she's been involved in my political life uh, quite uh, significantly. And uh, uh, I thought that the conversation with her would be a fun one to tell stories about the start of my political life and her involvement with it. Uh, and, and telling the story about why I make I made the choice I made. Well, it was an, it was interesting, and and it it really brought home something to me though, because I think you know you know that there are other um, electeds who will be facing this choice, but one of the things that I think we've seen at both the state and federal level forever in politics is once you're in, it's really hard to voluntarily walk away. Very few people, in my memory have made the kind of decision you made. They can generally rationalize it and say, well, you know, I'm doing this because the voters, I've been elected before, or whatever the case may be, I'm doing this for the voters. But as you just explained, you're actually walking away for what you definitely feel is for the benefit of the voters. And that's an interesting thing you don't see a lot in politics. I mean, is it, how hard was that decision? As you noted, I mean, you know, you're head of the elections committee. This is uh, had had to be a very tough decision. Well, I love being in the Senate, and uh, it's it's a it's an honor of my life, and uh, I love the work. And uh, look at if I thought there was a clear path, I'd run for re-election. Um, but I think part of it comes from coming into politics later in my life. You know, I've had a, I had a full career, uh, had raised my children. Um, you know, some would argue that when I ran for the Senate against two sitting assembly members, and I was simply the mayor of a small town of. 17,000 in, in a million person district. That was crazy thing to do. Um, I filed on the last hour of the last day of that special election, as I said, against two sitting assembly members, both chairs of powerful committees in the assembly. Um, that I, yeah, a little caution to the wind kind of a feeling about it. Why not? I have a, I have a message. I think it, it, it fits the lane of the district and turned out it, it, it worked out and it, and I was elected. Um, so I, I part of I think these decisions are where you are in your life, and uh, and look, it is hard to step away, Rich. So you're right about that. I'd like to look for opportunities to stay involved, but I just don't think it's it's not going to be in the same. Yeah, you know, what kinds of opportunities maybe are you interested in? Are there? I mean, statewide. I mean, I'm not again. I'm a news guy here. I'm trying. I'm trying to get you to break some news here, Steve. So you. you <laughs> Where where might you go from here? Uh, as much as I'd love to give you some news, Rich, uh, I don't know the answer, honestly. Uh, you've seen my, you know my past, uh, been involved in politics for 30, 40 years. 
I go back to my start working as a lobbyist in the Capitol in 1979. So I've uh, I've had a great career, seen seen it from all different sides, and and love the work and know how important it is. And certainly in this 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 climate of polarization, political polarization, I feel that my centrist uh, uh, and hopefully thoughtful approach to our our policy making, our lawmaking is a is a good place to be. And uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna look for ways to kind of continue that. I really don't know what that might be. If if your listeners have some ideas, let me know. Well, you know, you used to work with uh, Governor Brown, who famously left the governorship went all sorts of places. I uh, was a radio talk show host, uh, traveled the world, and then came back and ran for mayor of Oakland. So, uh, you know, the the world's really your oyster. You know, who knows who knows where you could end up? I think that's true, uh, Tim. And, uh, you know, partly it's about good health and it's about having a supportive family and, uh, and that a willingness to work hard and to stay engaged and to take the bricks and that are thrown your way from people who have different views, but to have a have a north star of of why you know our democracy is fragile, why representative government's important, um, why giving people a voice uh, that's not just uh, a voice that's uh, aligned with an interest group on the left or the right, uh, you know why that's important, and and that's the lane I've been in, and I'm sure for folks who are listening kind of. I know a little bit about me and 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 where I have been and why I talked about it this way. Well, and I want to stay on that for a second because, and you know, you know, as you know, you've been around a long time. Um, we have seen the discourse around politics in this country become very toxic. I think that's the word most people think of when they think about our political discourse in this day and age, which has actually driven a lot of people out of. I think more at the local level, but we've certainly seen it at the state and even the federal level where people just have had enough, right? And so uh, maybe share your thoughts on where we're at politically. You noted you're a centrist. I think we all know that. You're you're not somebody who's inclined to be in lockstep with with your party and or necessarily in deep opposition with the other party just because it happens to be the other party. Uh, you know, maybe talk a little bit about where we're at with our political discourse and how how it's impacted, you know, creating good public policy. Well, I think if you talk to members individually from any party, they'll say they're problem solvers. But it's very hard for them to get out of the way of the power that's exerted by interest groups and by the political leaders of their own party to really, in, in practice, show your willingness to compromise, find common ground, build consensus. So it's a problem. I mean, it's certainly a big problem in Washington. But as you know, it's been a problem in California for a long time, too. Uh, so it's not just like it's a Washington problem. And um, Trump has exacerbated that uh, substantially, certainly in California, uh, as the Republican Party just uh, withers withers away. Um, so I think it is important for people to practice that uh, common ground form of politics uh, for the health of our democracy. I think one thing that's become very clear to me and to others in the last few years is how fragile our democracy really is, that authoritarian voices uh, are finding resonance among huge numbers of our citizenry that make you go, really? That that's really they they want to they want to support someone who talks that way, who demonizes, um, who polarizes. And yet that is what our world is in America today. And it's it's unhealthy. 
uh, when I did a podcast with Willie Brown, he talked about that with me about the change. I asked him about the changes over the last 40, 50 years as he's been in politics, in political life. And he talked about good people not running anymore, that the quality of, of, of leadership in our legislature is really diminished since the time that he has been involved. And it's because of the power that's being exerted by interest groups and others to conform and not to look for that common ground. And somebody who's got the background of uh, Willie Brown, I go 40 years back, he goes 60 years back. I think that's telling and important. And of course, another pitch for my podcast where you can find these really fun and interesting stories, <laughs> including uh, an hour long with Willie Brown where I got to ask him anything. And we had a great time talking. We're we're happy to we're happy to offer you a space to advertise that a little bit. That's that's good. We're we're aside from news guys, we're political junkies. Like 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 most of our listeners are probably so that that's fine. Um, and kind of and I have to admit, I'm kind of turning it a little bit into a podcast junkie. I hate I hate to admit it. it seems like such a nerdy thing to be, but uh, you know, I really I, there, there's more podcasts out there than I want to listen to than I even have time for. Well, there's nobody in the Senate that has a podcast, and as far as I know, only a single member of the Assembly has a version of a podcast. So uh, mine started in June. And, in, in, you know, in addition to the Willie Brown story, uh, you know, I, I my the one released this week was about uh, Adnan Khan, who had been convicted of murder uh, that he didn't commit. And it was through legislation and changes in law that uh, that he got out of prison. And we tell the story of Adnan Khan in our version in our podcast this past week. But I love telling these stories, surprising stories. And Bringing politics to life, bringing real people to life. Um, I think that's a really healthy thing to have that kind of communication and information sharing. Well, and speaking of stories and real people, um, we we know you recently went to Israel, and I think all of us know uh, the tragedy that is happening there now. Um, maybe, can you tell us a little bit about that trip and uh, when when were you there exactly? Well, I've been there many times. You know, my I was working for Gray Davis in 1984 uh, as his press secretary, and I decided I needed a break from politics. He had only been in for five or so years at that point in time, but working very hard. I previously worked for Jerry Brown, um, and I told Gray that I wanted to go take a leave, and I decided to go to Israel to work on a kibbutz for six months. Uh, and that was the first time I had been to Israel and got to know the country. But in my legislative role, I'm a part of the Legislative Jewish Caucus, and we've done two trips to Israel, not so much for us as it was to bring other non-Jewish members to see the country and to understand their complicated story. And so this uh, 15 months ago, July of 22, we brought a large delegation to Israel. And a part of that trip was to go uh, from Jerusalem uh, to the goal to um, the Gaza to uh, understand the circumstances that was happening around Gaza. Uh, the day before we had met with the Palestine, uh, the PLO in the West Bank got special passes to go meet with the PLO leadership. And, uh, and then we wanted to understand the story of Gaza. So we went to a kibbutz that was sat three miles uh, from the Gaza border. It was a kibbutz, Kafar Aza. And we met with an elder in the kibbutz where she shared with us the story of the life living next to the Gaza Strip. They had, it was an agricultural area, they had farming. And as she spoke, she pulled out of the closet uh, uh, remnants of, 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 of munitions, of rockets that had been 
uh, rained down on their community um, and told the story of the resilience of, of living there and and the bomb shelters where you had to be like 90 seconds away when the sirens went off, there had to be enough bomb shelters on the property so that the six or 700 people that lived there could get in a bomb shelter quickly. And it was a very personal and impactful story. And of course, now it's a, it's a story that's filled with tragedy. Uh, Kibbutz Kifar Aza was overrun by the terrorists uh, this past weekend. Um, Many, many uh, kibbutz members were killed. Uh, it's the story that the media is reporting uh, where 40 babies uh, in the kibbutz were killed by the terrorists, 40 babies. Uh, some of them beheaded, some of them burned, uh, women and children murdered. And so it really has become a very personal story for many of us uh, who were there on that kibbutz uh, just 15 months ago as this, uh, this tragedy un unfolds in the Middle East. Yeah, I imagine it maybe in a way, well, I won't go there. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I, I, I wonder, um, you know, is there, a, is there a California connection in terms of legislation? I know a lot of, of political leaders, everyone has pretty much made a statement and, uh, about this. And we've certainly seen some, some statements on the federal level that have drawn a lot of controversy. Um, I guess where I was going with that is, you know, is there a sense in, in our legislature, like you say, you took a big contingent there. Is there a sense from your fellow uh, lawmakers about, you know, uh, anything that might happen here in our legislature related to this? Well, we've had a partnership. Uh, we've had a, a memorandum of understanding with Israel to exchange uh, economic exchange, technology exchanges. And a part of our visit there was to... Uh, um, enhance those relationships. And we certainly got some exciting uh, upfront views of the technology advances that uh, uh, companies in Israel in partnership with California companies were doing. Um, and that sort of intellectual uh, and techn technology exchanges are very valuable for both our state and, and their country. And it's something that we uh, have uh, wanted to continue to enhance. So there's there was always those relationships, uh, the, these uh, MOUs were signed by the last couple governors uh, with with the Israeli officials. So, uh, you know, they they have great high tech uh, innovation there happening there and, and water. Uh, we got to see uh, factories that are making milk products without cows. Uh, so some incredibly cutting edge uh, uh, issues were were reviewed. Uh, water conservation is a huge issue there. It's a huge issue for us. They're working with California companies in that space as well. So there's a lot of things that we have uh, in common that uh, that, that, that uh, is beneficial to have that strong economic relationship. And of course, for those of us of the Jewish faith, uh, and we have, I think, 16 members of the Legislative Jewish Caucus, the, the ties are even deeper than economic ties between that country and, and us. And... Uh, the importance of protecting this very fragile democracy in the Middle East, um, which is uh, which has had a, a history that is unlike any other. A refugee from the Holocaust, it's a place where Jews could be safe, where they can say never again. And of course, what we saw just a few days ago uh, is the worst nightmare. And, and I think, uh, Rich and Tim, Tim, I mean, people here say, what's the big deal? You know, a thousand people were killed. You know, we have tragedies all the time. 
And so what I've tried to do, and maybe you've seen it on my social media channel, is to try to put that in perspective for those of us here in the United States, that you know, the US is 35 times the population of Israel. So a thousand people dying in a single day is the equivalent of almost 35,000 Americans dying on a single day, on a single day. And when people say, well, what about 9-11? Well, 9-11 was a big tragedy. About 2,400 people were killed. And if you said, what about Pearl Harbor? Uh, I think around 2,700 Americans in a single day. What about D-Day, the invasion? About 4,400 Americans killed in a single day. So if you had 35,000 Americans killed in a single day, now that's the life in Israel right now for the tragedy that has affected that very small country. And so you get a sense of the magnitude of what just happened and how horrible it is and, and how Israel is, is, is seeing the, the threat as an existential threat, as they have seen in the past. The Hamas has as their primary goal the elimination of the Jewish state uh, to sweep all the Jews into the sea. And they're a terrorist organization. Uh, the, the Israelis uh, left Gaza uh, 14, 15 years ago. They, they, have, they have no say in the in the governance of Gaza. Hamas has everything to say, and they've turned it into a terrorist, a, a huge terrorist cell, and the consequences have been very severe, as we've seen. Well, and, you know, as you pointed out earlier, when you visited the kibbutz, there were bomb shelters that were in use, in regular use. It wasn't like they were historical artifacts. And there has been unbelievable amounts of tension between uh, Hamas and Israel and Palestinians and Israel, et cetera. This is something that's been ongoing. This obviously is the worst day in probably in the history of, of Israel, really. I mean, uh, I think it's worse than than the war 50 years ago that, uh, if I remember right, this attack came on the 50th anniversary of the war. Of the Yom Kippur War, yeah. Yeah. And so um, this is obviously something that that should never be repeated. It's it's horrible beyond description. What can be done to bring these tensions down? I mean, obviously the Israelis now are going to go in and and they're at war and and in the immediate they're going to be uh, reacting very fiercely. In the long term, you're familiar with the politics of this region and what's going on. What do you think needs to happen to make? Israel a secure place? And I mean, obviously, this is a bigger question probably than you can really answer. But in your opinion, what what can be done? What what needs to be done there? Yeah, I mean, well, I've been, supportive, issue. I, I've been supportive of a two-state solution as long as Israel's security can be preserved and protected. And not everyone agrees with that, but there are many that do. And I think there are there are, there are folks, leaders in the country that, that support a two-state solution and would like to see the political uh, actions move towards that place. Uh, but that means you have to have um, uh, a situation where those who are occupying that state, that Palestinian state, they can't, they can't be there for your annihilation. They can't be there to say that's temporary because we want you to, 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 to all go away. And um, to be clear, Hamas does not believe in a two-state solution. They believe they, in a they, one-state they solution. Do not. There's they no do. they believe in no Israeli states. That that is correct. And that's the basic problem with Hamas that's taken over the radical faction of the Palestinian community has taken over uh in, in Gaza, not in the West Bank, but in Gaza. And they've used that 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 community uh to advance their political aims. 
uh, as as we have just just reviewed. So, um, and look, there, there's always it's a democracy, and in the country, there's always tensions, as there have been over the last uh, few months in terms of the leadership of Israel. But this is where those things are all swept aside now in this circumstance that they find themselves in. Uh, the, the the bloodshed that has been uh, caused by Hamas uh, is is a, a huge proportion, and unfortunately, it means it's, it there will be an equal proportion of response. Uh, that will be uh, just 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 horrible, and it makes us all very unhappy uh, because we want to see a, a future that has peace among the neighbors. And there was a lot of advancement in peace among the Arab states in Israel. Um, the the word was that that we're on the verge of a peace agreement with Saudi Arabia, uh, as there has been a peace agreement with Egypt and Jordan and Qatar and others that have slowly advanced. But in so many of the other countries of that, in that area, Syria, Lebanon, there's chaos. Iran, uh, they're, they're, there's chaos there in terms of their place in, in, in the world order. Uh, and those things have taken time and will continue to take time. But in the meantime, you have a Hamas on the Gaza Strip sitting inside of Israel that, that shoots, have, have been shooting thousands of missiles over the course of the last two years, let alone three, 4,000 missiles in the course of 24 hours that we saw this past weekend. Well, and, you know, I know I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, I know one of the things that comes out of these situations is a lot of emotional information, some of which is really incorrect. And, you know, I think those things are kind of scary for a lot of people because our it goes back to what I said earlier about our rhetoric becoming so heated and so uh, often based on bad information. And I, you know, I'm just curious if, you know, you have a thought there about about how this might chain out, whether it's because of that or, you know, anything else, how that might chain out um, here in America. I think we have to have a, a big caution flag for where you're getting your information and, and ensuring that you're getting it from legitimate sources. And, uh, you know, we've we've started the debate about artificial intelligence and what's real and what's not written by a human, written by a computer. Uh, in general terms in regard to the internet. Um, but you have to be very careful about the sources of information that you uh, listen to or watch and to make sure there's a level of credibility that would make you have confidence that you're getting the facts. And that's really, really important, not just for what is really happening in, in, in Israel, but for our sake of our democracy and our political dialogue. Um, you know, the Capital Weekly, you guys work hard at uh, at the original journalism, having factual sources, disclosable sources, um, you know, stories rooted in and uh, deep research, which has been a testament for the, the journalism community, you know, across the country. But we, at the same time, we've seen, you know, a third of the newspapers close in the last twenty years, and we're seeing news deserts now that where the local communities don't have access to good, good journalism, um, at civic journalism. It's why I authored a bill in the legislature this past year to, to create uh, fellowships for journalists that cover civic affairs that uh, Berkeley Journalism School is now advancing uh, this year, which I'm very happy to see. But it speaks to this issue of how in a democracy, there, there has to be sources of credible information and oversight on what government's doing. And you guys at the Capitol Weekly do that and uh, they do and you do it well. But you know how hard it is economically and challenging it is. And that's a problem for us. And it's a problem for our democracy. 
Well, we're very fortunate because we're funded entirely by uh, Tim Foster's uh, piggy bank, and it works out great. You know, few people know Tim is uh, one of the richer men in the world. <laughs> he's, he's uh, I save all that money by driving my 2004 Toyota. <laughs> I see all that precious artwork behind you, Tim. So I had that I had a feeling of what Rich was going to say. You know, you know, if I really wish our listeners could see this because there is a 3D 1950s photo of a poodle <laughs> that, that the senator is referring to. You know, and and but really, as you're talking about this, uh, the past day I've been reading about mass layoffs at the Washington Post, and you know, this is not good. We we really need to see more journalists and more good journalism and more responsible journalism. And instead we're seeing uh, less journalism. We had, you know, Capital Public Radio just laid off, I think 12 people, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, not, not good. And I think you're right that having reliable sources of information is really important. Obviously Twitter now called X used to be what I felt like was a pretty reliable source of information. If you followed reliable sources, you could get really good information. It seems like they are, changing their business model so much that it's hard to find the reliable source of information in the same way. So it really is a, a moment for reflection uh, and things like what just happened this weekend, uh, you know, are more, I think they're more likely to happen when you don't have good reporting on the ground, when you don't really understand what's happening. And we're already seeing, uh, misinformation about this incident where people were sharing videos that were not from there, identified there, uh, identified as being from that. So it is a real problem. And it's it's one of the, you know, it's a 21st century problem, I guess. But uh, yeah, what- well, it's it's a problem for all of us. And uh, and it's fundamental to our democracy that we have uh, the fourth estate and, and civic journalism to keep government officials accountable for the decisions they make and to build trust in government. So that that it's something that uh, that we can preserve for a little bit longer. Well, and you know, as you say this, um, you know, here you're you're talking about uh, the government of Israel forming a war cabinet. You know, putting aside their differences. At the same time, we have uh, even the Republican Party can't put aside their differences to put a speaker in office at this moment, and really sort of draws a stark line. Yeah, well, it's a sensitive time, so. And other times it might not be a, a big a deal. There's been legal leadership disputes, but and certainly we have presidential contests every four years that creates l- some level of uh, of uh, turbulence in our political world. But um, you know we have to find a way to get along, folks. And you know we we do surveys. You guys do surveys where you ask people, do you want someone in office that agrees with you all the time or can find common ground? And on one hand, people say common ground. On the other hand, they kind of penalize people when they disagree. Uh, so it's a tough one in politics because we we know people remember the times they disagree with you more than the times that they agree with you. And so that's just our political reality we have to work through. Absolutely. It's part of why this conversation is a value, of value. Thank you for having it. And it's why in your podcast and mine, which by the way, you can find on my website or on Spotify or Apple, Table Talk with Senator Glazer. This is the stuff that we want to to continue. Let's have the conversation so reasonable people can do their best work. Absolutely. That's, you know, and that's always been my feeling is, you know, violence is always the failure of all reason. And we we need to maintain reason and logic and 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 honestly, a, a shared humanity uh, or we're going to we're never going to get past all these things. 
Senator, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. If you missed it, his podcast is called Table Talk. Senator Steve Glazer, it is on all the major podcast platforms, just like we are. So and we'll have a link in our show notes, by the way. Absolutely. Thank you. And you so you can listen to our one of our episodes and then one of his episodes and one of our episodes. You get the picture. So anyway, Senator, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really interesting conversation. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Rich. You guys have a great day. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're back with what is always our favorite part of the show. I, You know, I shouldn't say it that way because it makes it sound like we didn't appreciate our guests. And we absolutely uh, appreciate all of our guests that come on the Capital Weekly Podcast. But this is where we get to have a little fun with California politics. And uh, we call it, Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. You know, at this time of year, because it's we're getting down to, or well, by the time this airs, we'll have passed the deadline for the governor to act on bills, and so there are a lot of folks who have a have a bad week because their measure dies. This week we have something like that, and it's kind of a weird one, and I think that's why we've talked about this before we went to this segment. And that's the only thing I can say about it is it's kind of a weird place for for uh, the governor's veto signature. But I'm referring to Assembly Bill 782. If you're not familiar with that, 782, essentially, a few years ago, California passed legislation to uh, follow a federal standard when it came to anything to do with pharmaceutical uh, compounding pharmacies, that kind of thing. AB 782, uh, well, let me backtrack. Since then, that group has uh, determined that the compounding process includes uh, pill splitting or the flavoring of medications, generally what we would give to children to get them to, you know, take a medicine that probably doesn't taste very good. Um, so this year, to to then counteract that change, uh, AB 782 was introduced to um, to exempt California or allow California pharmacies to continue to do their pill splitting, which helps folks who may have trouble swallowing pills be able to swallow those more easily. Uh, and flavoring medications, which I noted helps kids. Um, it passed 80 to nothing in the Assembly and 40 to nothing in uh, the Senate. And I have to say, I completely missed this bill start to finish this year. So uh, there was, you know, zero drama with this bill. Zero. Nothing. Zero. Absolutely. <laughs> the zeroest of zero drama. I mean... You can't get any more perfect than 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 you know 120 yes votes. Well, oh yes, you can. <laughs> well, apparently that wasn't good enough for uh, for uh, Governor Newsom because uh, on October 8th, uh, that's Monday of this. Excuse me, a Sunday of this week, he vetoed it, and his uh, in his veto message, he said he felt it would. He appreciated the author's intention, which he always says to maintain the current availability of flavored medications, et cetera. He felt that uh, that would then make California, and I quote here, not meet the United States Pharmacopoeia National Formularies Guidelines regarding compounding 
that have been put in place to minimize you know, consumers' risk of any harm. Felt that also maybe contradicted a, a 2019 bill that uh, imposed some other rules on compounding pharmacies. And so the bottom line is he felt we would be out of out of uh, compliance with federal statutes. And um, I don't know, he's probably right. I don't know, but certainly all the pharmaceutical uh, people out there and probably a lot of parents who are now trying to figure out how they're going to get that cough syrup down their child's gullet. Uh, I have personal experience with that. Um, they are probably all going, what? Well, I don't know. You know, I, I still think maybe it's still flying under the radar. This this is such a weird bill and such a nuanced, like niche bill. But Hey, the governor's got to do what the governor's got to do. Someone on his team probably had some weird thing for this bill. It was their area of expertise. You know, maybe maybe Dr. Galley was like, to hell no. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. It's interesting you say that because, you know, I was having a conversation with uh, somebody involved in this today. And, and, and their feeling was maybe that was the case, that there was some confusion, uh, perhaps, uh, in in uh, relaying to the governor exactly what this bill did, uh, would have done and, and not done. Uh, we will see because odds are with something that passed that emphatically in both chambers, methinks we'll probably see this again next year. And and maybe they'll have it all worked out. We'll see. And, you know, technically, if they wanted to, they could override the governor's veto on this. They have more than enough support. My gut feeling is that... Uh, Revis and uh, McGuire are, are not going to burn their uh, no. burn their 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 good intentions with the governor over this. But uh, you know, in theory, they have more than enough votes to override the governor. But it won't happen. Yeah, yeah this is not the hill anyone's going to die on for sure. Um, and, and look, if you are also somebody who saw your bill get vetoed over the last week, and you think this is you know kind of a silly one for us to pick. You're probably right, but but in the end, it just again, it's just that it, the fact that not many bills pass both houses unanimously. Yes, without any and, without any grief. Yeah, um, and then get vetoed. That is what makes this a bitter pill to bring it all back to the, uh, <laughs> the bill. A bitter pill to swallow. Oh, uh, hey, you know. No better way to end the show than on a good pun like that one. I, I I think that's a good wrap. Wait, good place for us to wrap it up. So, Tim, as always, it's been fun. We'll see you next week, right? Thanks, Rich. We'll uh, we'll talk about more week. Absolutely. Take Bye-bye. care, everybody. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.